Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our little mini-series in Daniel. And the title of the message this morning is God is Still on the Throne. That seems to be the theme of the book of Daniel. And that's what we're going to preach about this morning. Please enjoy. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We're not going to stand at quite just this second. Uh, just while you're turning to Daniel chapter 7. So last week we're in Daniel chapter 6. And while I did not intend for this to be a series, I guess you could call it a mini-series. And uh, so uh, uh, I just have some more thoughts that I want to give you. And I guess I'm allowed to do that. So uh, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 7. The thing about, before we read our scripture, the thing I want to say, though, about Daniel is in Daniel, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. And what I mean by that is there are so many great and wonderful stories inside of Daniel. There's story after story after story, and they're amazing and magnificent, and they make a big impact on our Christian life. But the thing about it is that if you're not careful, you're going to completely miss the theme of Daniel. Okay, with that in mind, uh, let's stand as we uh, begin reading in Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 9. We're about to see here what the big picture really is. This is the big picture of Daniel. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. The title of the message this morning is, God is Still on the Throne. God is Still on the Throne. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the tremendous blessings that you've given this church, Lord. You've given us greater, far beyond what we could ever ask or think, and we are just so ready to accept the blessings that you're ready to give us, Lord. But that's not why we serve. We serve to lift up and glorify and edify your name. And Lord, as we explore the scripture this morning, may we get this idea burned in our brain, and may we take it everywhere we go that God is still on the throne. Meet with us in this place. Be with our preaching service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. No matter where you go in the book of Daniel, from the first chapter to the last chapter, all through the book, you're going to see a theme rising up out of the text of the Word of God in the book of Daniel. It starts in the great city of Jerusalem where the Babylonians came in and they invade and they capture Israel and they take them captive. And there's a group of young men that they take captive. And in that group are some Hebrew boys named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're led away captives with many others. Little did they know when they left that city that day they would never again see that great city. They would never step foot in it again. 
See, the Babylonians attacked Israel actually three different times. The first two times they installed puppet kings that would control uh, Jerusalem and Israel under the banner of, of Babylon. But the problem is, is given enough time, those kings would always rebel. And the third time they rebelled, Babylon was like three strikes and you're out. The Babylonians marched into Jerusalem. The Bible says that Jerusalem was raised. It was leveled. It was destroyed. For the rest of their lives, Daniel and his buddies would be in a different city. It had to be a very hard life. I mean, I imagine they had the horrors they imagined as they'd be taken away and what would happen to them and they, the, the terrors that awaited them to be slaves for the rest of their life. But you see, they, they, they didn't take them to the farms and they didn't take them to the prisons. And what they did is they took them to the king's palace. This is the place where we talked about last week where Daniel drew the line. There were three things that, 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 that they told Daniel that they were going to do. First, we're going to enlist you in the pagan universities and you're going to learn about the pagan religion. And Daniel was like, okay. Um, number two, we're going to take away your God-honoring name and give you a blasphemous name that honors the pagan gods of false religion. And Daniel was like, okay. But then third, you're going to get to eat at the king's table. And you're going to eat the baby back ribs and you're going to eat the fried shrimp and you're going to eat the gumbo and you're going to eat all the good stuff at the king's table. And Daniel said, well, I've got a problem with that. I've got an issue with that right there. I've got an issue with eating at the king's table and drinking from the king's cup. I got a problem. This is something I cannot do. And really the only Bible reason why we can come up with that Daniel didn't want to do it that's actually in the word of God is you go back in the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you're going to find a whole bunch of scripture, a whole bunch of verses that says what Jews can eat and what they can't eat and what they can drink and what they can cannot drink. And for Daniel, the word of God was paramount in his life. He put the word of God above absolutely everything else. If Daniel wasn't going to do anything, Daniel was going to obey the word of God. He put it above all else. By the time you come to the end of Daniel chapter 1, even Nebuchadnezzar had to admit, everybody in the palace had to admit that Daniel and his buddies were most excellent. What a testimony in Daniel chapter 1. Okay, so then we come to Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It is a dream that literally, that literally tells him the next six centuries of world history. What the, the dream tells Nebuchadnezzar what the next 600 years of world history is going to be. This is one of the most astounding moments, not only in the Bible, but it's one of the most astounding moments in, in world history. And it's the exact reason why professors say that Daniel wasn't written by Daniel. Because there's no way somebody could predict the next 600 years of human history. So it had to be written after the 600 years and Daniel's name was just put on it. What I have to say to that is let God be true and every man a liar. Nobody could do that. Well, God can. 
Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and you've been there. You wake up. You have a dream. Ooh, it was a weird one. We've had those weird dreams. Like, what in the world? I ate too much pepperoni pizza with extra sausage before I went to bed to have this kind of a weird dream. But then the thing is, is you may have have it right when you wake up, but then as time progresses, you start to lose it. And you know it was a weird dream, and you know it was powerful, and you know it affected you, but it just, it got to where you just could not remember it. So this is the situation where Nebuchadnezzar is in and he calls all the wise men and he calls all the Chaldeans and he calls all the sorcerers and he calls everybody in and says, hey, I've got two things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to tell me the dream. Number two, I want you to interpret the dream for me. And if you can't do that, you're all dead men. The wise men looked at the king and said, you're asking us to do something that nobody could do. Why don't you just tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation of it. I'm pretty sure they were pretty good at interpreting dreams. See, that was the reason why God made Nebuchadnezzar forget the dream. Because that was something that the wise men just could not do. And Nebuchadnezzar looked at all the wise men and all the sorcerers and all the Chaldeans and all the magicians and said, I knew it. You're a bunch of fakes. You're a bunch of frauds. You're a bunch of phonies. Off with your heads. And then Daniel heard about it. And Daniel was like, what's, what's going on? So somebody explained to Daniel what happened. What Daniel said to the king is, king, I cannot tell you what your dream was. I cannot give you the interpretation of the dream. But I know somebody who can. I know somebody who can. And the next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel is standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, the, most, the, the, the mightiest emperor in the world. And uh, this teenager named Daniel is, is giving the king the next 600 years of world history. What is, what is it going to be like? It's an amazing moment in world history. Daniel chapter 3, of course, we've got the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That was their Hebrew names. We talked about their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were the names I learned in Sunday school, but those were their heathen names. Those were their pagan names. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar said, look... I'm going to build an altar to my religion. It's going to be an image almost 100 feet high. And when the music begins to play, I want you to bow down. I want you to fall down. And I want you to worship my religion. And the three Hebrew boys didn't even take a second to think. And they said, we will not bow down. They stood up against that king and said, we will not bow down. We will not worship. And King Nebuchadnezzar looked at them and said, the only thing that awaits you now is a burning, fiery furnace. And who can deliver you out of my hand? So he took those three Hebrew boys and they threw them into the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looked in the fire and he looked back and he looked again and he looked back and he looked again and he looked in there and he said, how many people did we throw in there? We only threw three, but I see four people in there. And the fourth person is, 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 as, is like the Son of God. Now, when it comes to verse 25 in Daniel 3, there's, there's some different opinions here. 
The King James and the New King James say the phrase, like the Son of God. Okay? And the New King James even has the, 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 the alternate version of this. The phrase is like a son of the gods, like a son of the little g gods is the alternate phrase. Now, some of our newer translations say, uh, insert the phrase, like a son of the gods. And they put like the son of God in the footnote. Now, listen. My theology and my salvation does not hang on this verse. It absolutely does not. It doesn't matter to me which phrase is, is, is in your Bible. It really doesn't, okay? Uh, we, uh, the translators have done their due diligence and put both in there. Whether it's in the text or whether it's in the footnote, you have it. You have the complete word of God. No matter if it's, if it's phrase A or if it's phrase B, you have it. But, um, you know, and the reason why most newer translations, they insert the phrase like a son of the gods is because they assume that Nebuchadnezzar would have no knowledge of what the son of God would look like. And I understand that. But I'm going to give you my opinion. That's what I'm, 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 I'm going to give you my opinion. You can take it for, for, for whatever you, you want to take it for whatever it's worth. How would Nebuchadnezzar know what a son of the gods looks like? He wouldn't know because there wasn't such a thing. There, 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 there wasn't such a thing of that. Okay, we say, well, how would Nebuchadnezzar know what the son of God looked like? How would Nebuchadnezzar know what Jesus would look like? I mean, he's a pagan. He's a pagan king. How would we know that? How would he know that? Well, you know, as you read the book of Daniel, what you're going to find is Daniel had a deep, deep love for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had a deep, deep burden for Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 12, we see that the Bible says that Daniel spent his whole life turning people to righteousness. Daniel was a witness. Daniel was a soul winner. And the Bible tells us at the end of Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Let me ask you a question. How did he get saved if he didn't know who the Son of God was? How did he get saved if he didn't know who the Messiah, uh, that the Messiah was to come? How did he get saved if he didn't know the saving grace of Yahweh? He knew it because Daniel told him. Daniel told him. What a story in Daniel chapter 3. And of course we come to Daniel chapter 4. Uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar in his great pride and in his great arrogance, he looks around at this great kingdom, at this great kingdom that he has built. He looks around at it and he says, man, look at this great thing that I have built. This great, great nation that I have done, that, that I have put together. And God strikes him with insanity for seven years because of that. For seven years, he wanders the wilderness. And the Bible says you will wander the wilderness until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And right there in that verse, we get a glimpse of the theme of the book of Daniel. That is the glimmer of the theme. And that is the statement and theme of the book. Because whether it's boys 
being taken captive in Jerusalem, whether it's a great king with a great nation, whether it's a, a, a burning fiery furnace, what you have to realize today is that rising out of the pages of Daniel again and again and again is that you would know that the Most High God ruleth the affairs of men. That's what the book is about. The Most High God ruleth the affairs of men. God is bigger than an emperor. God is bigger than a war against Jerusalem. God is bigger than a burning, fiery furnace. God is bigger than the greatest ruler in the world. And then we come to Daniel chapter 5. We have probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, which there's actually some debate about that, okay? Uh, but the Bible tells us he was a ruler in Babylon, and his name was Belshazzar. And Belshazzar came to the place where he crossed the line. One day he's having a party, and he says, you know what? Why don't you go, and why, why don't y'all go over and get the vessels that we took out of the temple in Jerusalem. Bring those vessels into us, and we're going to have a drunken party. We're going to get drunk out of the vessels of the temple of God. Bad move. Bad move. It was at that time the hand began to write on the wall. And we all know the phrase, many, many tackle you farson. You have been weighed in the balances. You have been found wanting. And judgment will come upon you this day. 24 hours later, Belshazzar was a dead man. And the Persians had taken over the empire. Once again, it doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter if your name is Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't matter if your name is Belshazzar. It doesn't matter if you're Cyrus the Great. It doesn't matter if your name is Nero. It doesn't matter what your name is. The book of Daniel is in the Bible to tell us that the Most High God ruleth over the affairs of men. That's why the book of Daniel is in the Word of God. You see... It's God who establishes kings. It's God who establishes kingdoms. Then in Daniel chapter 6, we see Daniel being tossed into the lion's den. And that's what we talked about last week. And we see that God is bigger than a lion's den. And God is bigger than a burning fiery furnace. He's bigger than any king. He's bigger than any kingdom. Because it's God that ruleth over the affairs of men. There was a train going through Canada, very snowy place. I like snow for during the day when I'm off and I can throw a couple snowballs at my kids and then melt and go away. Give me a good 24 hours with it. On a day I'm not working, on a, this is what you got to do, God. On a day I'm not working, on a day I don't have to drive anywhere and I'll enjoy the snow and then melt and go away where I can go to work the next day. Um, but, but I enjoy snow, but this train is going through Canada and the train actually gets caught in the snow. And this was a long time ago. This was a big deal. And so all these passengers of the train thought, okay, we're going to die. And so this one guy gets out of the train and says, I'm going to try to go for help. And he treks out just a little bit and he finds a cabin. 
And inside the cabin is a preacher by the name of Frank Suffield. Frank Suffield uh, was just getting started in his ministry. He was an evangelist that traveled all over the country preaching the word of God. And he invited the passengers of the train into his cabin. He fed them with what little food he had. And, and he, he saved their lives, kept them warm until the snow melted where the train could go on about its way. Well, there was a young music student as a passenger of that train, and her name was Kitty, Kitty Jenning. Kitty Jenning wrote Frank Suffield a little thank you note, and then he wrote a letter back to her, and then they started exchanging letters after letter. It became correspondence. It developed into a relationship, and then one day the two got married. Kitty and Frank Suffield traveled all over the country preaching the word of God. And one day they even went back to Frank's home church for Frank to preach a meeting. And, and his pastor there was a man named Pastor Shea. And it was at that meeting that the pastor's son got saved. And maybe you've heard the pastor's son's name. His name was George Beverly Shea. So Frank, and, Frank and, and Kitty Suffield began to travel the world. And Kitty Jennings Suffield, she, she dabbled in music. And uh, she was thinking about back when she met her husband, about the circumstances and all the things that happened and lined up. And she said there is one thing about God that is constant throughout all their lives. She got a pen and a piece of paper and she wrote down these words. Have you started for glory in heaven? Have you left this old world far behind? In your heart is the comforter dwelling. Can you say, praise the Lord, he is mine? Have the ones that once walked on the highway gone back and you seem all alone? Keep your eyes on the prize for the home in the skies. God is still on the throne. You may live in a tent or a cottage unnoticed by those who pass by, but a mansion for you he is building in that beautiful city on high. It will outshine the wealth and the splendor of the riches on earth we have known. He's the architect true. He's the building for you. God is still on the throne. He's coming again is the promise to the disciples when he went away. In like manner as he has gone from you, you will see him returning someday. Does his tarry cause you to wonder? Does it seem he's forgotten his own? His promise is true. He's coming for you. God is still on the throne. And the chorus goes like this. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though trials press us and burdens distress us, he will never leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Christian, be it some Hebrew boys coming out of Jerusalem, be it a burning fiery furnace, be it, be it a lion's den, be it, be it a, a great king that says, bow down to me, be it a king that drinks liquor from, from the vessels of the house of God, be it a Nero, be it a Cyrus the Great, be it an Alexander the Great, it doesn't matter, be it what you will, God is still on the throne this morning. And he always will be. When all things are said and done, and when the dust settles, the Almighty is still on the throne. Like I said, you can call it the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. You can call it the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. You can even call it the Antichrist Empire. 
one day they will all know that God is still on the throne. So that's a little bit of introduction this morning. Let's get right to the text that we're talking about this morning, and that's Daniel 7, 9. And when we get to Daniel 7, Daniel is in the middle of a dream. He's in the middle, in the midst of a vision. Let's look back at verse 9. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, um, in, in the King James, it says that, uh, that the, the thrones were cast down. That's not the greatest translation. Uh, the, in the New King James actually fixed that. It says the thrones were set up. And when John looked in heaven, he saw 24 elders that were sitting on thrones. And uh, the Ancient of Days will take his seat in the midst of them. Now, when we get this picture of God in your head, who do you picture? Do you picture Charlton Heston? Do you picture George Burns? When you think about God, well, here's what most people picture. Most people picture God, and you know, the, his name is the Ancient of Days, is this old man. He's got the long white beard. He's got the, he's got the white hair. He's just an old grandfather figure. And if he wasn't God, he'd be walking around with a walker. And, and when people think of God, that's what they picture God as. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Ancient of Days does not mean he's old. Ancient of days means he's eternal and there is a difference. The God of the Bible always was, the God of the Bible is, and the God of the Bible always will be. And no matter where you find yourself in that timeline, God is present tense and he always will be. The Bible calls him the ancient of days, and that means he is in eternity past, and he is in eternity future all at the same time. The Bible says that the ancient of days took his seat. Well, that's an amazing thing. It's amazing because in just a second, Daniel's getting ready to talk about the tribulation period. Daniel's getting ready to talk about the Antichrist and the tribulation is aptly named because it's going to be some hard times during the tribulation. Mountains are going to be leveled. Islands are going to be moved. Whole countries are going to sink into the ocean. Over half the population of the world is going to be killed. And uh, what does it say the Ancient of Days is doing? He's just sitting. He's just sitting. Because that's our father. You're never going to get him into a panic. You're never going to see him fret. He's not going to get stirred up. He's just sitting because he's God. The Bible says his vesture was like white snow and his hair of his head like pure wool. That shows the purity of God. Now we're going to show us his power. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Now in the Old Testament, thrones were often portable so they could carry the king. And some thrones did have wheels on them. But I want you to see that God's throne is a fiery throne. A river of fire was flowing and, came and coming out from before him. The Bible tells us that God judges with fire. Not only the fire of the lake of fire, fire and brimstone, but the Bible also says that he tried the hearts of men with fire. Okay, there is, there is no one that can escape his eye. There is no one that can escape his presence. There is no place where you can hide, where you can get away from the God of the Bible. God sees everything. 
Then it says thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Um, that's judgment day. Okay, that's judgment day. And that is, the, that is where he will judge the nations and everybody that blasphemed him and everybody that shook their fist at God and, 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 and they will all stand before God. 10,000 times 10,000. You know, it's said that in Babylon, the highest number that they would count to would be 10,000. That was their highest number. So to say 10,000 times 10,000 is like for us to say infinity times infinity. These people will stand before God. Listen to me very carefully. Judgment day is coming. But the person who determines when judgment day is, is God. He is the one who determines that, not us. Not us. We can look at the Bible and we can study the word of God and we can give us the clues that, that he wants us, but we can't tell you what that day is going to be. We can't, I can tell you it's a point on the man wants to die and after this, the judgment. I can tell you that. Now, you read the rest of Daniel and man, the Daniel is just so very stunning. And what it kind of reminds me of it, 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 it I'm, I'm kind of reminiscent of, of the devil when he tempted Jesus. You know, he came to Jesus in the wilderness and the first time he tempted him, he said, hey, let these turn these stones that they mean be, be made bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, every mouth, every, every word that proceeded out of the mouth of the father. And so he's, the devil's using the word of God to attack him. OK, and then next they go up to the pinnacle of the temple and Satan quotes not Psalm 91. Well, actually, he misquotes Psalm 91. And Jesus actually corrects him on that. And then the third time is they go up on top of a mountaintop. And I don't know what kind of... He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And it could be that he, he, he just showed him just the whole world all at once. And, and, and Satan looks at Jesus and he's trying to tempt Jesus and say, Look, you don't have to go to the cross to get all these nations. I'll give them to you now. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll make you king of the earth right now. You can take a shortcut. And in that, the Bible says that the kingdoms of the world will be delivered to Satan. And Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus didn't correct him there. You pick any government you want. Any government. You watch the news and you see these politicians and you think, man, how can they do that? How can they say one thing when they run for office, but then when they get to Washington, they just go absolutely crazy? How in the world can that happen? They're just completely different. Just look at the last hundred years. It's just a hot mess. I mean, for instance, take, take dictators. A lot of these dictators had very philosophical, very philosophical differences. I mean, like Stalin, Mao Zedong, Hitler, Fidel Castro. They all had their differences, but you know what they all agreed on? They all agreed that Christianity was bad. They all agreed on that. They all attacked Christianity. And the one book that they wouldn't allow in their country was the Bible. They wouldn't allow it. I mean, politicians are so compassionate and they're so passionate, but yet there's only one book they want to get rid of. 
and that's the Bible. And there's only one name they don't want us to say, and that's the name of Jesus. And they can't even stand a manger in a courtroom, a manger scene at Christmas time. They, they, they can't even stand that. They, anything that has to do with Jesus, they hate. They won't say, okay, well, we aren't religious, but you are. Let's leave it at that. No, no. No, we're, we're not religious, and you can't be either, and you can't do stuff like that in public because it offends me. I am offended at that. You know, we meet these politicians at places like McDonald's and they may seem like normal people and then they get up to Washington and they just go crazy. Why? Because the Bible says that Satan does his work through the governments of the world. That's how Satan does his work. Somebody says, Satan's after me. Probably not. Satan is not omnipresent. He is one being can only be one place at one time. So it's probably not Satan himself that's after you. Well, then how does Satan work? Satan works through the governments of the world. That's just what the Bible tells us. It's done through human government. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel goes through all the, all the governments, all the empires that's going to be from now to 600 years. And that last one is even going to be at the end of time. He goes through all of them, but yet he still says God is still on the throne. But man, my God, and verse 9 says that my God is still on the throne and no matter what happens, He is still there. Man, you can't get any better than that. Well, yes, you can. You can get better. Let's look at verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Well, we know who that is. 84 times in the Gospels, 84 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is called the Son of Man. It is the human name for Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, once, once, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. Well, of course he's coming in the clouds because that's that prophecy in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends into heaven and some men, some angels say, look, as he went away, so shall he come back in the clouds. And then we read in Revelation, he comes back in the clouds. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In Daniel 7, 13, we have the climax of human history. This is the pinnacle, this is the climax of the universe, the climax of human history. And it's been preached on since as far back as we can remember. In fact, the preacher, the oldest preacher that's recorded in the Bible that we know about, preached about this day. You may have heard of him. He was a man named Enoch. He was the first preacher in the world. You know what? That, that's recorded. I'm sure there was preachers before him, but there's the, only, the oldest one that's recorded for our, that we know of. And know what he preached? We know what he preached about. It, it tells us in Jude. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, his message was about King Jesus returning to the earth. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. 
Verse after verse after verse, the kingdoms of the world will be given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2, 9, but we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned him with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In just a moment of time, Jesus is going to come back. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is coming back in the battle of Armageddon. Jesus will be there. He will come with the saints. We will be with him. We will ride with him. He will open his mouth. A sharp sword will come out from his mouth. He will speak a word. He will cut the enemy down. The blood will come to the horse's bridle. And then he's going to the Mount of Olives. And when he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, the mount will be split open. A river's going to run that way, and a river's going to run that way. A river of life. The mountain will be split open. And you know, Jesus is coming back. You know, the Mount of Olives is an interesting thing. I've never been to the Mount of Olives, but I've seen pictures of it. When you stand on the Mount of Olives and look towards Jerusalem, what you see is you see the Eastern Gate. Now, what's interesting about that is that's the king gate. That's the gate that the kings use. And the Bible says that Jesus coming back is to walk through that gate. Well, here's the thing. That section of Jerusalem is controlled by the Muslims. Now, they took precautions. I guess they heard about the Messiah and they say, we're going to do some things to prevent this. And my question is, if you don't believe he's God, why do you care? Okay, but then what they did is they took the eastern gate and they blocked it off. It's filled up with concrete blocks. Ooh, that's going to stop Jesus Christ. And then what they did is they they buried a cemetery. They've got a cemetery right in front of the gate to keep Jesus from coming back. Now, look, I've told you all this before, but I got some things to say about this. When one of your names is creator of the universe, the molecular structure of a concrete block doesn't mean anything to you. And when one of your many names is the resurrection and the life, a a cemetery is not going to stop you either. And one day after the Mount of Olives splits open, he will walk in Jerusalem. He will walk on the streets and he will be in the city of our God. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, his name, the only one. And it doesn't matter that the Antichrist is on the throne. None of that matters. When King Jesus comes back, he is going to rule and he is going to reign. And the Ancient One will deliver the kingdoms of the world to him. And you say, man, it can't get any better than that. But it does. Look with me, please, in verse number 27. Then the sovereign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. The ancient of the world will sit down to judge the world. The Son of Man comes. He will walk through the eastern gate. The Bible tells us that we will rule with him. We're going to rule with him. 
You know, there are many Christians throughout the centuries that have suffered for the, for, for the cause of Christ. You just go and you read 1 Peter to tell you that. These first century Christians, they lost their homes, they lost their families, they lost their jobs, they lost everything for the cause of Christ. It's one of the reasons why they had to live communally because they didn't have anything else. Everything was taken from them. And then you look at, look at Hebrews chapter 11 and you read through the hall of faith and you see all the things that people have given up for to stand for God. And then you go and you open a book like the Fox's Book of Martyrs and you see the Christians throughout the centuries just that just gave their lives and poured their blood out for the cause of Christ. But then get, guess what? There's coming a tribulation. And in the tribulation, it's, it's going to get worse than anything we've ever seen before. But one day, Jesus will reign and we will reign with him. You see, all the incredible stories of Daniel, don't forget the bigger picture. The book of Daniel isn't about Daniel. The Bible's not about Abraham. The Bible's not about Jacob. The Bible's not about John the Baptist. The Bible's about God. And in Daniel, Daniel is about God sitting on the throne, being in control of the affairs of men. He sits on his throne. Jesus comes to rule, and we will rule with him. It's so amazing. There's one more thing. There's one more thing. I want you to notice, because this is significant. I want you to notice when this dream takes place, when this vision takes place. Look at the top of the chapter, to, to Daniel 7, verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Okay, so at this time, Daniel's about 80 years old. At this time, he's a forgotten man. I mean, he was big back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, but in the current day at 80 years old, nobody really knows about Daniel. Then Belshazzar does his stupid move, and the hand starts writing on the wall, and nobody knows who can, who can interpret this writing. But then the queen steps out, and some people may even think that she's the queen mother, like maybe she was Nebuchadnezzar's wife, although very old. And she says there's only one man in this whole kingdom righteous enough to read that handwriting. And so they bring in Daniel, and the Bible says, the Belshazzar said, Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, wearing a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. Purple is a color of royalty. He said, I will make you royalty. And then you're going to get to wear gold. I don't know if you know this, but not everybody could wear gold. Only certain high-ranking officials were allowed to wear gold. And then it says that he would make him a third ruler. If you study the history, Belshazzar was a secondary ruler over just the city of Babylon. So third ruler was actually the highest position that he could give. So he said, Daniel, I will make you royal. I will make you honored. I will make you rich. And what did Daniel say? 
Keep your gifts to yourself or give your rewards to somebody else. Daniel, you just, you just turned down a lot of stuff. Well, the thing is, the, the way the timing works out on this, Daniel 7 happens before Daniel 5. So you see, Daniel just saw God on his throne. Daniel just saw Jesus coming back, and Daniel just saw us ruling with him. And when you keep that in the forefront of your mind, the world has nothing to offer you. And Daniel had just saw this vision. So this little thing that, that Belshazzar just offered to him, he doesn't need it. Belshazzar, I don't need your robe because one day I'm going to be given a robe of righteousness that will be washed clean with the blood of the Lamb. Belshazzar, I don't need your gold because one day I'm going to walk on the streets of gold. Belshazzar, I don't need your promotion because one day I'm going to rule and reign with Jesus and I've got a bigger promotion coming towards me one day. And when you stop and realize that the message of the book of Daniel is also the message of the whole Bible, God is still on the throne.